lately I've been asking myself questions about the future of humanity. That's a, a big topic, uh, thinking not just about the next five years or even the next hundred years, but about the entire future, everything that humanity might be able to achieve in the time to come. The past of humanity is about 200,000 years. That's how long Homo sapiens has been around, according to our current best guess. It might, it might be a little bit longer. Maybe we should even include some of our other uh, hominid ancestors and think about uh, humanity somewhat more broadly. I'm not sure, but it's at least 200,000 years that we've been around. And if we play our cards right, we could live hundreds of thousands of years more. In fact, there's not much stopping us living millions of years. The typical species uh, lives about a million years. So our 200,000 years so far would put us in about our adolescence. Just, uh, just old enough to really be getting ourselves in trouble, but not wise enough to have really thought through how we should act. But a million years isn't an upper bound for how long we could live. Uh, if you look around at other species, you find some such as the, uh, the horseshoe crab uh, has lived for 450 million years so far. And the earth uh, should remain habitable for at least that long. So if we can survive as long as the horseshoe crab, you know, we could have a future stretching millions of centuries from now. Millions of centuries of human progress, uh, human achievement, and human flourishing. And if we could learn over that time how to reach out a little bit further into the cosmos to get to the planets around other stars, then we could have longer yet. If we could travel uh, the about seven light years away, which is not easy, uh, but not impossible either. There are already plans in progress to send spacecraft at these types of distances. If we could do that, then the whole galaxy would open up to us. If we went seven light years at a time, uh, just making jumps of that, of that distance, we could actually reach uh, almost every star in the entire galaxy by continually spreading out from the new location. And these stars will, some of them will still be burning in trillions of years from now. So if we can play our cards right, we could survive not just a million years, not just hundreds of millions of years, but trillions of years into the future, exploring billions of worlds in the heavens above us. This is a, a vast potential. The, the upper bound to what we might be able to achieve over that time, however you really think about achievement, whether you think of it as, as the, uh, the flourishing, of every, the well-being in every life that's lived, or whether you think about it as our, the greatest knowledge that we find, the greatest works of art that we create, the greatest achievements of other kinds, the most just societies that we create. Almost all of this should be in the future, because our future is potentially so much faster than our past, and certainly much longer than our fleeting present. We don't often take this seriously and really contemplate how small a slice of humanity we're seeing at the moment, how transient 
the political affairs of the day really are. And how maybe the most important thing about all of these uh, affairs that are going on today is what role, if any, they'll play on shaping that entire future of humanity. And yet, this whole future is at risk. We've survived 200,000 years so far. That's 2,000 centuries. And there have been risks during that time. There have been risks, you know, most famously of asteroids hitting the Earth, as seems to have happened 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs were wiped out. So that's one type of risk we've been exposed to over that whole time. There's also comets. There are supervolcanoes, uh, like the, the Toba eruption. Uh, and there are also risks of natural pandemics. These things have been around for 2,000 centuries. And the good news is that in most cases, uh, we know that those risks must be small. Because if they were uh, even 1% per century, then there's, it's vanishingly unlikely that we would have survived for 2,000 centuries. So we know that the natural background of risk must be fairly safe. It's the type of thing that lets species live for a million years on average. But humanity is not a typical species. And one of the things that the most worries me is the way in which our, our technology uh, might put us at risk. So if we look back at the, the history of humanity, these, uh, these 2,000 centuries, we see this initially gradual accumulation of knowledge and of power. If you, if you think of humanity over this time, you, you can notice, I mean, if you think back to the earliest humans, that they weren't that remarkable compared to the other species around them. An individual human, that is, is not that remarkable on the savannah compared to a, a cheetah or a lion. Or, or gazelle. Or, but what was really amazing and set us apart was our ability to work together and cooperate with other humans to form something greater than ourselves. There was the ability of teamwork, uh, to work together with those of us uh, in the same uh, tribe. And that let us expand ourselves to be dozens of humans working together in cooperation. But much more important than that, was our ability to cooperate across time, across the generations, by making uh, small innovations and then passing these on to our children. We were able to set a chain in motion where by the generations cooperating with each other, there were tens of thousands of people working together across deep time, slowly building up these innovations and these technologies, and accumulating power. This happened, uh, I mean, we, we often, when we look back at our history, we, we just look back up until uh, the, the very first writing. You know, we think about the, the first names that have been written down, the first legends and the, the first histories. And when we think of amazing things that humanity has done, we're really restricting ourselves to the last 5,000 years of written language. But for 195,000 years before that, we were doing other amazing things. We had the, the first humans to enter each new area of the world, 
coming out of Africa and finding the new animals and plants of each region, working out how the ecosystems fit together, naming all of these things, understanding which plants could be used for early medicines, uh, which animals to avoid, how to hunt them, how to evade them. They were, the, they were the first human who set foot in Australia, this strange new world with very different species that had been cut off uh, for millions of years. There are amazing things that we'd done, but most amazing was this accumulation of innovation. And all the way until now, there's been around about 100 billion humans who've ever existed, and 7 billion now. And these 100 billion lives have put together these innovations and accumulated information and power about the natural world and how we can influence it. And this escalating power has gone through major transitions and has started increasing the amount, uh, the, increasing the rate of progress. First, with the agricultural revolution, where we developed farming, and that led to permanent large settlements, where instead of tens of thousands of people in cooperation across the generations, we had millions at any one time, and billions uh, across this wider network of humans. And that was one major acceleration. Another was the scientific revolution, when we developed the ability to really understand the world around us, to break free of dogma about that world, to properly test and discard bad explanations. And then we could use some of this information we gained to accelerate again our knowledge and of the world around us and to shape it towards human ends. The Industrial Revolution, of course, accelerated that again when we found ourselves with access to a tiny portion of the sunlight that has shone down upon the Earth over millions of years. And we use that with our innovations to lead to the modern era of sustained growth. And our lifespans doubled over that industrial era in the, across the whole world. Uh, the uh, poorest countries now live longer than the richest countries did back then. So we've had this huge acceleration of, of uh, progress and power over the world. But that has led to a new transition, and one that I think is probably even more important than any of those that have come before. In 1945, we developed nuclear weapons. At that point, humanity's increasing power finally reached a level where we posed a risk to ourselves, not just to individual humans, but to humanity, a risk and a chance that everything that we've ever built up before, over hundreds of billions of lives, would come to naught. A way that we might end up destroying, not just our present, but our entire future. Everything that could come, all the transitions to come, all of our achievements over these vast aeons that we could live to see as a species, all of that could be severed. We're not 100% sure whether a nuclear war could actually destroy ourselves. But that's the first time where it became really plausible that it could. And since then, I think that the technological progress has only continued and has escalated. 
we've seen a massive amount of carbon emissions since that time, leading to the current crisis of global warming. And that's something which, again, might be able to be an end to humanity. Once more, we're not completely sure. It might be that even the worst cases of global warming turn out to be something that we can survive. But we've reached a situation where there's a very real possibility that we couldn't. We wouldn't be shocked if it turned out that, uh, that we could meet our end here. And so with these changes, we've entered this new period, which I call the precipice. Because I sometimes think of humanity's long history as a journey through the wilderness, with occasional times of hardship and, and moments of sudden progress and heady views. And I think that since 1945, we've been coming through a pass in the mountains and finding ourselves inching our way across a narrow ledge on a cliffside at the brink of a deep precipice. In the distance, we can see more fertile and beautiful lands that we might still be able to reach. But right now, we're exposed to risks. We don't know exactly how large those risks are. We can't say with precision because we've never done this before. We've never encountered risks as large as these. It's not an experiment that we can run a thousand times and lose a hundred Earths in order to work out these probabilities. This is a case where we have to see the threat even without access to those kind of rigorous numbers. But it still seems, and I think there's a good case for this, that this is the most dangerous time yet and will be a pivotal moment in our journey. If we survive this time and we make it into this distant future, then I think our children, or our, actually our distant descendants, will look back at this time as a uniquely important time. They would see that, the, say, the Industrial Revolution was important, but not as important as the precipice. Because this is the moment where that entire future was at risk. If we didn't have the Industrial Revolution when we did, we probably would have found access to these, uh, these fossil fuels at a later point. Uh, a lot of breakthroughs that we have are a matter of when we make the discovery rather than if we make the discovery, such that what's at stake is something about speeding up the trajectory of humanity or slowing it down, as opposed to whether we flourish or whether we're forever gone. But this moment's different. Uh, and if the chances are as high as I think they might be, then we can't survive many centuries with risk like this. It's an unsustainable level of risk. Either we, uh, we work out how to lower these levels of risk. We face these technologies uh, that pose some of these threats and we manage them successfully. And we make commitments to govern ourselves in the future to keep the risk down to a sustainable level. We get it low and we keep it low. That's one way forward, one way the precipice could end. The other way, of course, is if we let the risk stay at the current levels or higher, let it keep escalating, in which case there's only so many more rolls of the dice that we could survive. Because I think it is 
at that level of a roll of the dice. I think that uh, last century, humanity faced something like a 1% chance of ending its story in the nuclear age. And I think that this century, the risk is even higher. And I put it at about one in six. So a die roll or Russian roulette. But I think that we can rise to this challenge and make it through. I don't think that this is uh, inevitable in any way. So I'm not trying to make some kind of morality tale or fable about humanity's hubris, that we tried so hard you know, to, to reach for the sun uh, and that led to our inevitable downfall. I don't think that that's right at all. I think we should reach for the sun. I think that technology is probably essential to humanity achieving its potential. It's certainly essential to the types of stories that I just told about how long we might be able to last if only we could reach the stars. We're never going to do that without technology. I think that without technology or without technological improvements from beyond where we are now, we probably wouldn't even reach 1% of what we're capable of. But technology is what's creating these risks. And so it's a more complicated story than just is technology good or is it bad. I think it's essential. But I think it's something that we need to be more careful in how we govern and how we, our, our attitude to it. I think that humanity does behave somewhat like an adolescent. Our timescales these days are often set by the, the news cycle, a couple of weeks, or by an election cycle, you know, three to five years. But if we think about this analogy to a single human life, then a four-year election cycle is like the next four hours in our life. And we're in this situation where maybe, you know, very visionary people are thinking three election cycles ahead, uh, which corresponds to half a day. And humanity takes risks with its entire future. And these are like an adolescent taking risks with the rest of their life in just thinking about the next few hours and what they could get in the next few hours. Uh, and being massively imprudent when it comes to these risks very short-termist and impatient. I think we could, we could think of all of these, these concepts, these virtues and vices, uh, not just at an individual level, but at the level of humanity. Uh, I call these uh, civilizational virtues and vices. I think humanity, to survive this time, needs to be more prudent and more patient. And it needs to find wisdom. Carl Sagan put it that way. He suggested that humanity has become powerful uh, more quickly than it's become wise. We've had this exponential improvement in our power, but our wisdom has grown only falteringly, if at all. We're in a situation where we have the power to destroy ourselves without the wisdom to ensure that we don't. And that's why our situation is, is so unsustainable. So I've been thinking about all of this, about just how bright our future could be, how science knows of almost no limits to what we could achieve, to the durations that we could last, to the 
portion of the cosmos that we could uh, discover and explore, and to the heights of quality in each of our lives, or the types of achievements we could make. This is something that it, it probably is bounded, it probably isn't really infinite, but it's so vast. You know, we haven't yet dreamt of the bounds for a lot of these things. And so it's this vision of this, uh, this wonderful and, and vast future that's at stake that inspires me to think more carefully about the risks we face now and the ways that we might imperil all of this uh, with our actions and to think about what we need to do now, what, what things can only our generation or our children's generation uh, do in order to protect this, this seed of humanity so that we can grow into something even more amazing. To protect our present and thereby protect this entire future. People only really started asking these questions about the survival of humanity and to really face the, the possibility that, that we might not survive. Around about 1900, H.G. Wells, uh, gave a, a brilliant lecture about this, about ways that, that humanity might fail, and, and wrote some very stirring words on the matter. And then there are a few more kind of thoughts about this uh, over the next uh, 40 years. And then it really, it really came to a head uh, with the development of nuclear weapons. A large number of the atomic scientists uh, who had developed these weapons uh, went on to form the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And they started asking, have we, have we created something that could end the human story? Then uh, this was picked up very quickly by uh, Bertrand Russell as well, uh, who uh, wrote a lot about these, these possibilities, uh, including with Einstein. Uh, for about uh, 20 years, it was, uh, it was those two uh, leading the way in, in thinking these thoughts about whether humanity might be coming to an end. And what would that mean? And what should we do about it? Uh, their, their suggestion was that we needed a global government in order to get through. Then, uh, in, uh, in the 1980s, uh, this was picked up again. Jonathan Schell uh, wrote a brilliant book uh, called The Fate of the Earth. And he, at that point, was taken by, by the then uh, theory uh, that the ozone layer could be destroyed by nuclear weapons. Earlier people had thought that fallout, um, uh, radioactive dust falling back down to Earth and then killing people through radiation might be able to lead to the, the end of humanity. Uh, in the early 80s, uh, it was thought that maybe uh, ozone depletion would lead to a whole lot of UV radiation um, killing people and making it impossible for humanity to continue on. He wrote a very stirring book and came up with a lot of key insights about this. Uh, he was the first person, to my knowledge, to really make this distinction that if we lost uh, everyone, then that is so much worse than losing almost everyone. Because it's not just this destruction of our present, but the destruction of our entire future. So he was asking these questions. And he did a, a fantastic job of combining the kind of analytic philosophy of making precise observations, precise insights and distinctions, the kind of stuff I, I really like, um, on this topic, this central topic of nuclear war. And he did that in combination with actually a, a form of continental philosophy, 
of writing really stirringly and engagingly and trying to really come to grips uh, in a more kind of artistic manner with what was at stake. Uh, to try to stir the reader's emotions and kind of shake them and force them to really confront uh, what their taxpayer dollars were funding. Uh, the threat to destroy all the civilians of the opposing Soviet Union uh, and ultimately perhaps uh, to destroy the entire future of humanity. Then a year later, uh, in 1983, uh, Carl Sagan uh, had done some very interesting work with some colleagues of his where they looked at this possibility of nuclear winter. Um, this actually arose from, uh, from some uh, climate modeling they'd been doing uh, for other planets. Uh, when they had to kind of, you know, come up with entire planetary climate models, very simple ones, much simpler than the things we have today for climate change. And he noticed uh, that there was this possibility that the soot from burning buildings uh, from a nuclear war might be lofted not just up into the, uh, the normal heights of the atmosphere where clouds could form and rain it back down again, making kind of black rain where the soot falls out, but it might be able to be lofted so high that it gets into the stratosphere above the clouds. And then there's no easy mechanism for making it uh, fall out of the atmosphere. So we might be in a situation where this soot could stay for a decade, blocking out sunlight, chilling and darkening the earth. And he noticed that if that happened, that this would cause a kind of winter over the whole world. Um, it would reduce temperatures by a great deal. Um, uh, in the center of continents, um, uh, for example, in Iowa, um, uh, I think the reductions would be tens of degrees colder, really you know, vast, um, and then less in the coastal areas. Um, but on average, it, you know, it could be more than five degrees of cooling of the world. And that this could lead to uh, early frosts, including summer frosts, greatly reducing the growing season for grains and, and uh, uh, staples. Uh, so they might not be able to last long enough between frost through to the next frost uh, to actually get a crop. This could lead to mass starvation, uh, perhaps the collapse of civilization uh, regionally or globally, and perhaps even the extinction of humanity. So this was a new mechanism uh, that, that he and his colleagues had discovered. And he wrote this uh, seminal piece in Foreign Policy magazine, uh, where he was a scientist, but he was trying to engage with the philosophy and the politics of this. What does this new discovery that nuclear weapons really might, through this mechanism, uh, destroy humanity? What does that mean for nuclear policy? What does it mean for humanity? What does it mean for being a citizen of one of these countries that is developing and deploying these weapons? So there's kind of already this really interesting mix of disciplines of people who are interested in this, right? It's, uh, you know, Bertrand Russell, philosopher, um, Albert Einstein, a physicist, uh, Carl Sagan, an astronomer, uh, and uh, Jonathan Schell, uh, a journalist uh, and environmentalist. Uh, although also a brilliant philosopher, but to my knowledge, he never trained as one, uh, but, he, but he, he does uh, excellent philosophy. That, then, the next year, 1984, uh, a, a fantastic book came out, one of the best books in philosophy in the century, as widely regarded as, and, and uh, I, I would agree, uh, was Reasons and Persons by the Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit. 
I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure whether he'd read those other two things that had just come out. I think he might have. But he included in, in his magnum opus, uh, at the pride of place near the end of the book, he included uh, this, this idea of uh, how our entire future might be at stake. And, you know, he, he also kind of like very clearly delineated it. He, he said, think of this, imagine three outcomes. One, peace. Two, a nuclear war that kills 99% of all people. Or three, a nuclear war that kills 100% of all people. And he said that obviously peace is better than the nuclear war that kills 99% of people, which is better than the nuclear war that kills 100% of people. But he said, but which of those two differences is the, is the greater? The difference between peace and 99% of people dying, or between 99% of people dying and 100%. And he, he pointed out, as, as, as turns out to be correct, that most people would say uh, that the first difference is bigger between peace and 99% of people being killed. There's way more deaths in that, that range than in the range below. But Parfit, uh, you know, building perhaps, or perhaps independently of uh, Sagan and uh, Shell, he noticed that that next bit, actually, the difference between 99% and 100% was bigger because it was in that additional destruction that our entire future would be lost and that the future is bigger than the present so that is uh, the kind of early history of these ideas they then come up uh, again with John Leslie uh, another philosopher in 1996 uh, he has this uh, wonderful book uh, the end of the world the first real exploration not just of nuclear war but broadening it out into all the ways that that our future uh, could be lost uh, through extinction. And uh, really summarizing lots of science in there. Um, in fact, a lot of these the philosophers who've had to deal with this have really had to grapple with a lot of science, and the scientists with a lot of philosophy. Uh, and then uh, uh, Nick Bostrom in 2002, uh, my, my colleague, who just works down the hall from me um, at the, the Future of Humanity Institute uh, in Oxford, he actually extended this idea uh, from extinction risk to existential risk. And he noticed that there's, there's other things, other types of catastrophes that would have a lot of in common with extinction. For example, if there was a permanent collapse of civilization across the globe, the type of thing from which we could never recover, a very deep collapse. Uh, and if that would happen, we know that extinction would reduce the range of possible futures for humanity down to just one, you know, a world bereft of human life, no more opportunity for human action in the future. But a global collapse of civilization that we, from which we could never recover, a particularly extreme one, uh, would reduce our future from potentially billions of years or trillions of years exploring billions of worlds, or even just what we could do in our world with this kind of our current technological power just running on for millennia, it would reduce that down to a kind of impoverished group of people, you know, a thousandth of the population we currently have, living lives with very little opportunity, much shorter, uh, more meager possibility. So these things would both be irrevocable in that case. Or you could imagine other cases. Instead of a world in ruins, you could imagine a world in chains. Uh, if it were possible, as uh, Orwell thought it might be, uh, to have a global tyrannical rule, perhaps a totalitarian regime 
that's just whose primary purpose is to perpetuate itself. That might not have been possible to, to go on for centuries back with the technology in Orwell's time, but it wouldn't have to. It would just have to last long enough to have developed new technologies of surveillance that would let it entrench itself even further. We could imagine a, a, such a regime starting up soon and perhaps lasting 20 years, which might be long enough to uh, force surveillance into every room in every house or something like that. Perhaps using AI technologies uh, to then watch these things and flag any suspicious behavior to human authorities. Uh, that might then be enough for them to last, you know, 100 years longer. And then more technology will be developed and they could perhaps bootstrap into the future. I don't know if that's possible. Um, I hope it's not. But it's an example of another thing where our descent into it, the moment that such a totalitarian regime takes hold, would be a pivotal moment for humanity. Because at that moment, our potential would have collapsed from this kind of vibrant, vast range of possible futures down to this very narrow range of terrible outcomes. So all of these things have in common, that it's that, that you lose the future, that our potential is destroyed, and that it's an irrevocable loss. And they have other things in common, such as that, uh, that they are something that we can't learn from. Now, humanity is good at learning from trial and error. Uh, we, uh, we make some mistakes. Uh, catastrophes strike. And we learn from, from sifting through the ashes. And we, we build a better world, something that's more stable and can continue on. But existential risks, whether they be through uh, extinction or through irrevocable collapse or through uh, permanent uh, dystopias, what they have in common is that you can't learn from them. If they happen even once, it's all gone. So that means that we have to use foresight and forward planning. We have to be especially prudent. We can't wait till things are emotionally resonant because we, we all remember the catastrophe. We have to think ahead. This is so much harder, uh, but, but they all have that in common, and thus they're a common class of scenarios that we need new techniques to deal with. And so Nick called those existential risks, uh, and they're a major focus of my work. I think he's right, that, that if you're thinking about the potential of humanity across our entire long-term future, then existential risks are this central threat to that potential. Uh, they're the things that can happen on the, in our century, which could have these lasting effects rippling down throughout all of time. And these ideas, it, it's interesting. We, we're not often allowed to explore things like this in academia. Uh, people don't actually want to publish these things. Um, this isn't the normal type of stuff we do. But we've been trying to make a bit of room for it. Um, I work at the, the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, and we try to create a bit of space to explore ideas like this and to, to think them through and to find a way to get people together that, that, that care about the science, to understand the science and understand the philosophy and the ethics of this. If you, I mean, a lot of people ask, uh, what do, uh, what do moral philosophers do? Um, what, what is ethics in, in the academic sense of the, this, uh, this discipline, studying what we should do? 
if you look at what most uh, people in moral philosophy do, uh, it's asking a kind of question about uh, trying to find a theory that would explain what we should do. Uh, and in a lot of instances, they're looking at human behavior, human practices, um, particularly human practices that seem uh, morally loaded in some manner. Um, and then, you know, such as, say, theft or murder or lying or something like that. Maybe, maybe uh, something like charity on the, on the, on the positive side uh, or empathy. Um, and then they look at these, these practices or, or, or emotions and they try to analyze them and understand them to understand when they're appropriate and why they're appropriate, what makes them appropriate. And through thinking about all those things to try to work out how to live a better life. Uh, and why it is that we should even be trying to live a better life. Asking questions like these. There's also an area of meta-ethics uh, where they ask not just what should we do, but what does it even mean to say that, uh, that there is an answer to that question? Um, if we shouldn't kill someone, what does it mean that we shouldn't kill someone? How do you cash that out? Um, a lot of really difficult questions there. Uh, but one thing that, that doesn't happen that often is asking certain bigger and more revisionary questions, such as what are the most important problems in the world? Why are those the most important problems? Is it possible that we're in the midst of some kind of moral catastrophe? Um, if, you, if you look back and think about the times of slaveholding, uh, the uh, citizens were in the midst of some kind of moral catastrophe. Uh, where they were part of an institution that was causing immense injustice and suffering. Are we doing something similar now? Uh, some people would say yes. Uh, you know, one example that people would suggest would be uh, the environmental destruction. Uh, this was going almost unnoticed uh, until the 1960s, uh, when all of a sudden there was dramatic understanding of this. And it actually moved from something that wasn't even considered part of ethics for most people or part of morality uh, to something that's considered a central aspect of, of being a good person. Uh, you know, uh, people often use, say, whether someone does the recycling uh, as, a, as a litmus test on if they're a good person. Similarly, uh, animal welfare was not really considered a central part of morality, at least in the West, uh, until uh, uh, late in the 20th century, uh, when there was a big change in that. And then similarly, kind of, you know, whether someone's a vegetarian, a lot of people use as a kind of litmus test on leading a moral life. So I think it's, these are interesting ideas that show that maybe there are some really big questions at stake here. Maybe there are things we're doing that are very wrong. Or maybe there are things that we could be doing that would be extremely good that we're just failing to do because we're, we're blind to it. And I think that asking big questions like that, the kinds of questions that if they go somewhere, and if they turn out to be right, could really revolutionize uh, the direction humanity goes in. Uh, I mean, presumably, a lot of these uh, approaches are going to be misguided. Uh, but I, I, I really wish more people would ask these types of big questions. One, one school of thought that's, uh, that's related to that is something that, that I've been developing along with uh, my colleague, uh, William McCaskill, which is uh, an idea that, that we call long-termism. And this is thinking about the really long-term future of humanity, 
and maybe the long-term past as well. Trying to get people to, to think beyond the present. Normally when people think about moral action, whether something's right or wrong, they're thinking about the consequences uh, or, you know, or the, the motives behind the act that are present right now or in the very near future. For example, whether, uh, whether it would hurt other people um, uh, who, who currently exist. But actually, a lot of our actions affect the long-term future of humanity. And because this long-term future could be so vast, and because some of these actions uh, might actually have lasting effects over this future, it, it could be the long-term effects of our actions, which is actually of central importance, perhaps more important than the effects over the next few years. And that's something that we've been exploring. And I think that a, a key part of that would be these ideas around existential risk. It could be that uh, living a good life, or at least one of the best lives that you could lead today, is about helping the long-term future. I used to be working on global health and global poverty, which I think is also a supremely important issue. I've often tried to, you know, tried to tackle some of the big picture questions facing humanity, making some, some kind of contribution to these huge questions, rather than trying to tackle something that's a small part of life. And uh, so I worked on global poverty and global health, trying to work out how that fits into our lives, what we people in rich countries should be doing about it. And uh, I noticed, uh, one of the things that I first noticed was that some ways of helping are much better than others. When you ask people about this type of question, what should we be doing? Their answers were often, well, probably we should, we should be giving some of our money, perhaps a lot, uh, to charities working to help people in poor countries, because the money can do a lot more good that way. And I think that that's right. But what they didn't notice is that some ways of doing good in poor countries are much more effective than others. Uh, that, that observation has been noted. Uh, that's actually one of the reasons for skepticism about aid, to point out that a lot of aid uh, does a lot less good than we think it would. Perhaps it gets wasted, um, even in some cases has negative effects. But that's not a good reason not to donate to charity. It's a good reason to donate to the right ones, uh, to the ones that are having positive effects. So when I, I looked at some of the evidence on this uh, and then did some mathematical analysis on it, something that's not very common in ethics, uh, I noticed that if you look at the health interventions, uh, ways of helping people uh, across the world, uh, that some of these were 10 or a hundred or even a thousands of times more effective than others. Uh, this was data through uh, the Disease Control Priorities uh, Project. Um, and uh, they, their, their data suggested actually that it wasn't the case that, that most things you could do were within, say, a factor of two of each other in terms of how much they help. But it was easy to find things that were 10 or 100 times more important. In fact, I, I found, I did a, one, one piece of analysis was that if you took any two uh, health interventions at random that they looked at and you funded them to the same amount, on average, one of them would do 100 times as much good as the other. You could see that in a positive sense, that one is, uh, you know, does way more good. Or you could see it in a, in a negative sense, that in one case you'd be squandering 99% of your money compared to what you, how you could have effectively used your money. 
And this struck me as a supremely important aspect about this question. It's not just about giving more, but giving more effectively. And those things are multiplicative. If you, if you do both, you know, they're better than the sum of their parts. They're the, they're the product of their parts. Uh, and that a lot of people could give 10 times more uh, to help those in need and to give it 100 times more effectively, increasing their impact by a factor of a thousand. And I, I tried to put those ideas into practice in my own life and work out how that would work. I found uh, charities working on some of these interventions that were found to be the most effective uh, and started donating my money. And uh, I, I heard from other people who wanted to join me and I, I set up an organization uh, to do that, uh, a charitable group, uh, giving what we can. It's, it's a society of people who make a pledge to give at least 10% of their income to help others as much as they can. And that developed further as well. Uh, I, I was joined on that project by, by this colleague, uh, Will McCaskill. And uh, together we and others uh, founded a, a broader philosophy uh, called effective altruism, of people trying to use their money to do as much good as they can, and also trying to use their careers to do as much good as they can, and other parts of their life. People trying to really say, to really take this seriously. Um, uh, you know, when they find out that, uh, say, $1,000 can save a life, that their reaction is not, okay, here's $1,000. But the reaction is, oh, oh my, that, what would $10,000 do? Save 10 lives? You know, how, how many lives could I save over my whole life if I really took this seriously? And actually, if, if you do these, these calculations, it looks like we, we may be able to save um, a typical person in a rich country if they really took this seriously and lived on a very modest amount. Uh, they might be able to save about a thousand lives during the course of their career, uh, which is uh, about as many as Oscar Schindler saved. So when we think about the history of ethics and, and ethical problems, we often think of these kind of small moments where there was this possibility amidst tragedy for heroism, uh, such as with Schindler, uh, where someone could make these risks in order to, uh, to save a thousand lives. And that that was some kind of silver lining on such a dark time, that there were moments for this kind of, kind of action. But actually, we could do these in our own lives. Um, you would have to make a considerable sacrifice uh, in order to save a thousand lives uh, through your career in most cases. But it could be done, and the sacrifice is probably less than that facing Oscar Schindler. Uh, and there are hundreds of millions of people in a position to make that choice. And so by really trying to think about this effectiveness and take these numbers seriously, uh, it really opened up all of these new possibilities for how to think about an ethical life. Less focus on the, the age-old questions of how to avoid wrong action, um, lying, cheating, stealing, killing, um, not, that, not that people would do any of those things uh, as in effective altruism, but that that's just a really low bar, not, not doing those types of behaviours. And that we should be perhaps thinking bigger than that about not just how can we avoid those wrong actions, but how can we make the world a much better place? How can we help others as much as possible? Uh, how can we use reason and evidence in light of doing that? How can we use the best science and mathematics of this? Uh, to try to make a difference. And that, that's been something that I've found it to be very neglected, uh, be, partly because it involves thinking about ethics and mathematics and science altogether. 
Uh, and these are things that a lot of those people I mentioned in the, the early days of thinking about extinction risk, existential risk, nuclear risk, things that they did too. Uh, so often, in order to really ask and answer these big questions, I think you need this, this quite interdisciplinary approach. Uh, and maybe that's why it doesn't happen more often. I started off my studies in science, not in philosophy. I uh, was in computer science uh, and particularly interested in uh, theory of computation, logic, and artificial intelligence. Interested in, in creating other minds, questions like this. But I also was interested in, in politics and the political debates made me wonder what the fundamentals were. I noticed that there were a lot of things that were disputed and some of the things that were disputed were facts, but other things were values. Um, where people would sometimes agree on the outcomes of a policy, but disagree on whether it was a good idea or not. And to, to try to really get into that, it, made, it brought me into ethics, and I did some ethics alongside my science. Uh, and as I kept going, I, I, I did more and more philosophy. found that you could ask a lot of the questions I was interested in about the nature of minds, the nature of logic and computation within philosophy as well. I kind of ended up uh, doing both. And there are various people who, who inspired me within philosophy, uh, who made me realize that there was something there that, that I could really do. There was, there was lots of philosophy that I thought wasn't so inspiring, um, where I worried that it was all a bit of a game and that there, there wasn't that much at stake. Maybe some of the questions were interesting. And it was you know, fascinating trying to see whether you could rebut the skeptic who thinks that no external world exists. What could you say to them? But at some other level, we, you know, we, we would go on assuming that an external world existed regardless of whether we could actually answer that question. It wasn't clear that there was that much at stake. But Peter Singer uh, was someone, another Australian philosopher, uh, who showed me that you could actually turn to key ethical questions about the world around us uh, and make a lot of progress on those questions, both in terms of the ideas and in terms of taking them to the world around us. Uh, you know, his, his key contributions were uh, the, the book uh, Animal Liberation and his, his work on animal ethics, uh, which really started a movement. And also a key paper of his called Famine, Affluence and Morality, uh, one of the first papers that he published, um, which is a pivotal thing in terms of the ethics of global poverty and what we could do to help others less fortunate than ourselves. Uh, and then one thing that, that really just made that, that connect with me was that he didn't just have these nice arguments about what we should do or how it might be a, even a moral obligation on ourselves uh, to donate, not just a nice extra, but perhaps something fundamental, um, was that he, he set a high bar for himself and he really took these ideas seriously uh, in his own life, both in terms of animals uh, and in terms of global poverty and donating his money. And so that, that kind of moral seriousness, the kind of willingness to follow ideas where they go and then to, to adopt them in, in your own life uh, is something that really showed me that there was, there was something here, something that wasn't just a game, something that was really serious. And then I was also inspired uh, by the work of uh, Derek Parford. Um, this, this book, Reasons and Persons, I, I read it when I was uh, studying in, in Australia. Uh, and... Uh, even though uh, he did not do any mathematics, 
uh, and, and has always claimed uh, to be symbol blind. Um, if he sees some kind of formula with a capital sigma in it, uh, his eyes just glaze over and he doesn't get it. Uh, but, and yet, uh, he was so precise in the way he did philosophy and so clear that, that I couldn't believe it when, he, when he, he told me that. I assumed there must have been uh, uh, all of these things in his books and kind of went back and looked and indeed there, there weren't. Uh, but he was doing mathematics. Uh, he just didn't use the symbols. Uh, he was very clear and conceptual. Um, uh, ultimately had a very mathematical mind. Um, uh, and that, that concision and clarity really inspired me in, in how I was going to approach philosophy. Uh, and when I came to Oxford, uh, I was lucky enough to, to have him as a supervisor uh, for my uh, dissertation. And I guess I was also inspired by my other supervisor, John Broom, who used to be an economist and then switched into ethics. Um, and he actually showed how uh, a lot of mathematical tools from economics could be used to make really central points in ethics. And, and he ended up in the, the White's Chair of uh, Moral Philosophy at Oxford, uh, the most prestigious uh, position here uh, in ethics, despite being an economist by training. Um, because he saw uh, that the economists were very good at showing what follows from a key set of assumptions, a set of axioms. They had the methods that philosophers didn't uh, to really find out what follows. If you start with these four assumptions, you know, such as like Arrow's impossibility theorem uh, about voting, uh, these kinds of ideas, and he showed how some of these could be applied uh, to ethics. Uh, and things like um, the von Neumann-Morgenstern axioms of expected utility theory uh, in economics, uh, which shows how you can take people's preferences. Do they prefer A or B? Do they prefer C or D? Um, do they prefer chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? If you take preferences not just over particular outcomes, but over gambles, chances of getting different outcomes, you could turn those kinds of ordinal preferences into this cardinal structure. You could, you could start to say things like the difference between chocolate ice cream and vanilla is 10 times as important as the difference between vanilla and caramel or something like that. Uh, and uh, uh, John Broom showed how you could take ideas and the, the mathematics of that and apply it to ethics, not just to the structure of human preferences, but to the structure of the good and how you could start with a fundamental idea about what's better than something else, which outcomes or which, which chances of outcomes are better than which others. And from that, you could create a kind of cardinal, like numerical structure of the good. Uh, and he, he took a lot of these ideas now and really made a lot of progress with them. Uh, it showed how if you uh, take some kind of expected utility theory um, over chances, uh, then that actually affects how you should distribute benefits between different people. Um, uh, building on, on the work of, uh, of others, um, such as Hassani. Um, so there's a, a amazing kind of groups of people who really kind of took these ideas seriously and sometimes uh, saw them from these different perspectives. Uh, and then I'm also inspired by, by others, uh, like uh, uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, I think that he, his work and his writing uh, showed me that you can be a scientist and you can write books uh, for a popular audience and books that are beautiful. And at the same time, if you actually go to the sentence and you look at what it's saying and you know the, the maths behind it, behind the science, you can see that this sentence is exactly accurate, um, that it's 
you know, a poetic way of describing reality, uh, but it's still a description of reality. Uh, and that it's not kind of popularizing the science, it's, it's doing new science in a way that crystallizes out the essential aspects and presents them clearly and beautifully. And that, that, that blew my mind. Uh, and uh, uh, so that, that's been a, a, ever since uh, inspiration in me in, in trying to write in, in that way. It's kind of uh, amazing kind of standard that, that to, to aim for. What I'm really excited about at the moment uh, is thinking about th this long-term future of humanity and thinking about our institutions, such as our democratic institutions. Most of the people affected by the decisions of our government don't get a vote. We've had progressive expansion of franchise, you know, from, uh, from men through to women, people of all races, uh, everyone above 18. But yet, most of the people who are affected by our actions are people in future generations, people who don't exist yet, but will, you know, benefit or suffer under the effects of these choices. And when you think about what justifies a democracy, uh, it's this kind of consent of the governed. Uh, but how do we deal with that? I think this is like fascinating questions about, about democracy. And are there ways in which we could take steps to give a voice to the people of the future? Because if we could, then that could help to resolve some of these problems. Uh, some of these challenges about taking the future appropriately seriously by giving it some kind of political power, whether that be soft power, uh, as has been tried, say, in Wales, where they have a commissioner for future generations um, who can ask these questions of government and demand answers, or perhaps even hard power, uh, perhaps having a, a, a political chamber uh, to uh, review legislation uh, in the interests of future generations, representing those generations. How would you design such a thing? How would you make sure it didn't get captured by current political interests or corporate interests? Is that impossible? Or are there ways to do it? And what about at the international level? How can we guarantee our future? How can we, now that we've realized the fragility of our present time, how can we put into motion the institutions that are needed to get risk down and keep it down forever? Could we through new international institutions or, or changes to existing ones, could we in some way write a constitution for humanity that would put in place minor limits, kind of safeguards to keep us away from the, the edge of the cliff, but would leave other things open for us to decide in the future what kind of possible future we want to realize? Is it possible, you know, for, for people in this century to literally or figuratively write a constitution for humanity and be the, the founding fathers and mothers of the future and thereby perhaps to ensure that we set it on a course towards achieving this potential, this really bright potential that we have over the distant time? That's what fascinates me at the moment.